What's up, man? This is Joshua Kelly, running back from UCLA, and you're listening to The Podfather. A tale of two drafts. Oh, a tale of two drafts. I'm currently participating in two Dynasty startups right now. And I wanted to execute two radically different openings to each of these drafts. Just to see how it plays out. Neither of these drafts are complete. The first draft was super flex. I was invited by J.J. Zacharyson to join Rich Rebar and Pat Doherty and Matt Harmon and some others. To join with some mutual friends that live out in California, guys I know, guys JJ knows. It's like a poker night. It's nice to have a couple big poker personalities sit down at the table. That's certainly JJ. That's certainly Rich Rebar. I don't know about myself quite yet. I'm not there yet. We're working on it. So in that particular draft, I had the 102. And uh, Saquon Barkley, easy enough. Super flex. The decision was Saquon or Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes. Please, please, Saquon Barkley. Why Saquon Barkley? Because the difference between Saquon Barkley and a running back I could get in round four or five is significantly different than Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, and the quarterback I could select in round four and five. Unfortunately, I used the word value over stream in a previous Dynasty show with Nate Liss, and that was a misnomer. I realized that that was a misnomer that in Dynasty, you can't just go to the stream to find a quarterback, particularly in 2QB and Superflex leagues. So let's just say the value over replacement, the opportunity cost. It's just a way of explaining the opportunity cost. So if you wait till late round four, round five, the running backs are Keyshawn Vaughn, Leonard Fournette, Melvin Gordon, David Montgomery, Devin Singletary, Le'Veon Bell, Chris Carson. That's the opportunity cost for not going Saquon. Because none of the big six quarterbacks were going to make it back to me at the 211. I would have to go Lamar Jackson over Saquon Barkley to get one of the big six quarterbacks. And I didn't think it was worth it based on opportunity cost. At the 211, Jonathan Taylor. At the 302, Joe Mixon. So I was the only drafter to triple tap running back. And I wasn't planning to triple tap running back. But Joe Mixon was there. If Joe Mixon were not there, if... Matt Harmon had gone Joe Mixon instead of Josh Allen or Julio Jones at the turn, then I, I, I would have gone DJ Moore and been happy with it. DJ Moore went off the board two slots later. Happy with DJ Moore. Happier with Joe Mixon. And you can see exactly how I feel about Joe Mixon and DJ Moore. You can look at their lifetime values on our Dynasty rankings. We see these complaints in the iTunes store about the Dynasty Dominator. Oh, you guys don't have the full list of lifetime values uh yeah we do it's called the dynasty rankings apps are limited by design because we can't give everything we do away for five dollars oh i'm sorry if you bought it this year it's ten dollars you have to pay an additional five dollars to load the rookies oh, I'm, I'm sorry i'm sorry oh let's go add the dynasty rankings to the dynasty dominator app and punt a key component of the all-in subscription which is the engine of our business yeah let's go ahead and do that that sounds like a good idea No. And if you do have the all-in package, you will qualify for a $35 
Dynasty Startup Voucher at the FFPC. Now, I recently completed a Dynasty Startup at the FFPC, and I believe that that particular league was a window into a hybrid approach of what I executed in the Friends of Late Round Quarterback League versus the Dynasty Startup Mock, Kelly's Heroes, hosted by Sean Wasco, friend of the underworld, Sean Wasco. So back to the Superflex startup, Joe Mixon at the 302, and then Allen Robinson at the 411. Oh, snipe Matt Harmon. Oh, love it. Love to see it. You love to see it. Sniping Matt Harmon on Allen Robinson. <laughs> snipe alert. <laughs> sorry, not sorry, Matt Harmon. And then somehow, some way, DeAndre Swift available at the 502. That's not common. The problem in Superflex is no quarterbacks, right? I'm forced to take Allen Robinson because he fell to me. I'm forced to take DeAndre Swift because he fell to me. Uh, I can't take a quarterback. Now, if you go and look at that FFPC league, I was forced to take a quarterback because quarterbacks started to go off the board earlier. This is what is maddening to me about Dynasty League draft tactics. The claim that every draft plays out the same way. It never does. It never is, but there's this assumption, oh, you got to at least get a quarterback by round four. And at the FFPC, in that particular Superflex startup, I did. I saw quarterbacks go relatively early in that particular draft, and warning bells were going off in my head, especially because I didn't select in the middle of the round. If you're selecting in the middle of the round, you can take more chances. If I were selecting in the middle of the round at the FFPC, I would have likely waited an additional round to select quarterback, but... I couldn't. I was near the turn, and at the 403, I went Matt Ryan. I had to. Josh Allen, Carson Wentz, Joe Burrow, Baker Mayfield, all those canary in the coal mine quarterbacks were off the board. And then sure enough, there goes Tua, there goes Daniel Jones, there goes Jared Goff, there goes Aaron Rodgers. Boom, 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 boom. So what did I do? Easy choice. Matthew Stafford in round five. And then, oh, there goes Drew Locke, there goes Drew Brees, there goes Tom Brady. But I waited, I waited, I waited, I waited. I traded out around six in the FFPC. And then at the 710, Kirk Cousins. Boom, boom. Triple tap quarterback. Anytime I'm near the turn, my instinct is to double tap a particular position because that's the only way that you can seize control of the round. Because otherwise, if you have to select players in succession, you typically pick the value player that happened to fall to you at that particular slot. Rarely do two players that you think are undervalued slip to you in a particular zone of a draft. So you're forced to make the easy value play, and then you're forced to reach. So the draft is taking control of you. The only way you can take control of the draft is to double tap a position, and that puts pressure on your league mates to follow suit, especially if a tier is coming to an end. And in 2QB and Superflex, especially if that tier happens to be at the quarterback position, you end up putting a lot of pressure on your league mates. And that's what I ended up doing in the Friends of Late Round Quarterback League once I had DeAndre Swift, only one wide receiver, Allen Robinson. I went Sam Darnold, Kirk Cousins, Ryan Tannehill, Teddy Bridgewater in succession. I quad-tapped quarterback. I feel like, I feel like at or near the turn, you almost have no choice. You have to exert some level of control on the draft make your league mates feel uncomfortable make them second guess their decisions maybe force one of them to reach for a quarterback when they would have otherwise selected another position 
and then that guy ends up falling to you. That's the best case scenario with that tactic. So to recap, Saquon Barkley, Jonathan Taylor, Joe Mixon, Allen Robinson, DeAndre Swift, Darnold, Cousins, Tannehill, Bridgewater, and then a double-tapped wide receiver with Mims and Nikhil Harry, double-tapped tight end with Gronkowski and Irv Smith. Now that, that is right out of the J.J. Zacharyson playbook. He loves to select a win-now and win-in-the-future player, especially near the bookends of a round. He told me about this tactic, and I love it. I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Gronk is here. Boom, Gronk. Win this year. Boom, Irv Smith. Win in the future. Done. And then, Jamison Crowder and Alan Lazard. You have to get some receivers to play. So, my starting receivers in week one will be Alan Robinson, Jamison Crowder, and Alan Lazard. So, we have a starting receiver tethered to Aaron Rodgers. A number one target hog in Jamison Crowder. Jamison Crowder is getting some buzz in seasonal leagues. But why not in Dynasty? In seasonal leagues, I think by the end of the summer, he'll be selected in the single-digit rounds in seasonal leagues. But in Dynasty, he'll always be available well after slot 100. Easy. But look at the numbers. 122 targets last season. 122 targets. He was top 16 in targets last year. And targets per snap, hog rate, on playerprofiler.com, 16%. That was number 15 overall. Now... The yardage was relatively low, 834 yards, because these are low target depth passes that he's receiving. His average target distance was only 8.0. That's 91st in the league. So these are very close to the line of scrimmage targets. But an established veteran has left, only to be replaced by Brashad Perriman and Denzel Mims. And in this Friends of Late Round Quarterback League, I was happy to hedge to get at least one wide receiver pairing. I like the wide receiver pairings. I would have been happy with Nikhil Harry and Julian Edelman as well. But if you can monopolize a passing game at value, and in the case of these Jets receivers, Mims at the 10-11, and then Crowder at the 14-11, you get to dominate those Darnold targets without investing much startup draft capital. And that's the beauty of waiting on wide receiver is that you can get a Jamison Crowder and his top 20 target share... In the 14th round, you can get Alan Lazard, who's only 24 years old, with real upside in that Packers offense now that he has secured the number two wide receiver role in the 15th round. And then eventually, eventually, eventually went back to running back Duke Johnson, Damian Harris, emulating J.J. Zacharyson once again, win now with Duke Johnson, win later with Damian Harris. Bada bing, bada boom. Now, juxtapose that with this recent Roto Underworld mock draft. It's not super flex. So the running backs went off the board in a hurry. Oh, when you don't do two QB and Superflex, you forget how quick those running backs go in startup. So at the 110, Jonathan Taylor was gone. Miles Sanders was gone. And I just couldn't live with myself passing up Michael Thomas. I have very little Michael Thomas. I've had the pleasure of selecting Michael Thomas in precious few leagues. Michael Thomas was there. I went Michael Thomas. And that was a mistake. Josh Jacobs would have been the optimal play. That's why Josh Jacobs has a higher lifetime value on player profilers, dynasty rankings than Michael Thomas. And it sounds crazy to say that because Michael Thomas is an early first rounder in dynasty startups and you can get Josh Jacobs in the early second round. That doesn't align with ADP at all. What do I care? What matters is the value. What this player can deliver versus the opportunity cost. And the opportunity cost of me not selecting Josh Jacobs was enormous because at the 203, Neither Jacobs nor Nick Chubb 
were available. I should have gone either J.K. Dobbins or DeAndre Swift there, but I didn't. I didn't. I said, you know what I'm going to try to do? I'm going to go the robust wide receiver route and see what happens. So I selected Chris Godwin, which was a mistake. Because now, fast forward to the 310. And guess what? No Kenyon Drake, no Austin Eckler, no Leonard Fournette, no Aaron Jones. What am I going to do? Select Melvin Gordon there? They're all gone, man. I like Darius Geis, but it's a little early for Darius Geis. So I win Amari Cooper. And at the 403, Allen Robinson. So now I have this robust wide receiver team. And my running backs are going to be untenable. This is an unwinnable league at this point for the podfather. Flip over to the friends of late round quarterback, and this feels very winnable. If you can start Saquon, Taylor, Mixon, and Swift, because there's two running back slots and two flex spots, and then slide Crowder, Lazard, and Allen Robinson in the wide receiver slots with Rob Gronkowski at tight end, it feels very winnable. It feels like that starting lineup is going to have an advantage against most other starting lineups where already just playing it out in my head, I'm going to be at a huge disadvantage with this robust wide receiver team. That's the cost. It feels great to get Amari Cooper. It feels great to get Chris Godwin. It feels great to get Michael Thomas. But every step of the way, I would have been better off just foregoing the sexier wide receiver and selecting a meat and potatoes running back. I hate it. Like I don't like it. I think some people think I love running backs. I don't. I don't love running backs. We've talked about RB and then wide receiver times four to start seasonal league drafts for years. That particular strategy is becoming less and less tenable as well. But years ago, it became clear that strategy is dead on arrival in Dynasty. If you don't get your young bell cow backs early, you'll be treading water all season. Your team just won't move the needle. And I could hear the giggles. Oh, the Podfather's hoarding running backs. Now he's hoarding quarterbacks. Doesn't have any receivers. Doesn't have any tight ends. Except, of course, Allen Robinson. But mostly lacking in those positions. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, how about this? How about this? How about we not make judgments about rosters until the draft is over? Because I see a lot of productive wide receivers in the player pool. And I don't see any productive running backs left. I see very few productive tight ends and quarterbacks left, but I see a hell of a lot of productive wide receivers left. It's almost as if waiting and then backing the truck up at the wide receiver position at the end of a draft is the way to go. It's almost like that's the case. And from a purely opportunity cost approach, it's clear. It's clear that it was a mistake to go any position but running back in those early rounds. And it would have been a mistake for me to go anywhere but quarterback in rounds six through nine. Now, I was able to read the room. Demand for quarterback was soft in this particular league. That's why I waited. That's why I felt comfortable going Allen Robinson and DeAndre Swift and waiting 20 picks to get my quarterback. Fortunately, I was able to secure Donald and Cousins. You're allowed to read the room and not approach a draft with hard-coded instructions of which slots to draft which positions. You can let the draft come to you. Why are you in a hurry? Why are you in a hurry to get your quarterback? Why? And once those big six are off the board, it's a dead zone for rounds. Look at this FFPC draft. It's tight end premium. And in the third round, it went Carson Wentz, Joe Burrow, J.K. Dobbins, good pick, Baker Mayfield, letting Travis Kelsey slip to me at the end of the third round in tight end premium. 
That can't happen. It can't ha- It did happen. It's crazy. Just couldn't wait on quarterback. You're doing your team a disservice by panic drafting quarterbacks in Superflex and 2QB. Now, I did come back in round four and select Matt Ryan. I want to be sure to mention this because I received some criticism on Reddit that I was referencing drafts that just aren't realistic. No, I'm referencing real drafts with real people competing for real money where I'm patiently reading the room rather than panicking. That's all that's happening. But do I have some rule that says I can't draft a quarterback until round five? Of course not. There is. Matt Ryan, 403. Thank you very much. Happy to have him. And if I didn't go Matt Ryan, the play would have been Cam Akers there. That particular draft happened before the draft. So had I known Cam Akers would go to a place like Los Angeles where he would have the backfield to himself, because I don't think Darrell Henderson and Malcolm Brown are going to be able to hold Cam Akers back for long. I think by week three or four, he'll be commanding a 60-plus opportunity share. And with his abilities, that's instant RB2 with RB1 upside every week. That's a guy I would like to have. So in the one situation where I did select a quarterback in round four, it was questionable. It was understandable. It was defensible. Still questionable. The teams that come together best are those where you wait on wide receiver and you wait just long enough on quarterback in super flex and two QB leagues. And you should check out these FFPC leagues. If you have the all-in package, just email me, podfather at rotounderworld.com, and I will send that $35 voucher to you so you can get started at the FFPC. They have startups, new startups happening all the time, orphans available. You got to get on that. Email me. And now we got to get on to our interview. I was fortunate to have the opportunity to speak to Lance Zerline. He covers the NFL for NFL Network. He does a lot of those draft write-ups on players in the draft tracker. He knows his stuff. Let's just say that. He knows his stuff. His father was a, an offensive line coach for many years in the NFL, so we have some offensive line questions for him. It's in his blood. So let's go talk to Lance and follow him at Lance Zerline on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program. A special guest for you today. The NFL Network's own Lance Zerline is here to talk about the fallout from the NFL draft, the picks that matter, especially for fantasy football, the teams that killed the draft, the teams that uh, face-planted on draft day. I have a lot of questions for Lance, and he doesn't have a lot of time. He's a busy guy. So this is going to be a 100% rapid-fire show. The first in Roto Underworld history, all rapid-fire <laughs> with Lance Zerline. He has 45 minutes with us today. We want to optimize those minutes with Lance. Talk to me. Let's go. Which direction you want to head in? Where, where do we start first? Well, which team had the best under-the-radar draft? The team that killed it no one's talking about. But I think the one that everyone should be talking about really is the Baltimore Ravens oh. because what they did, and sometimes this really – it really falls on your definition of what you think matters most in a draft. And for me, it's a combination of chance taking, but also value making and then, and then isolating your weaknesses or your areas of that you need to strengthen. And I think the Ravens did it across the board in many regards. And yes, they did have more picks. I mean, they had four third round picks, but when you look at their third round picks, I'll give you some under the, here's why I, I like the Ravens because of under the radar players. 
And that, to me, is what's important. Tyree Phillips in the third round with the 106th pick. Uh, pick number 42 of the third round. See, this is where I had him rated. I think people are sleeping on Tyree Phillips big time. He's a tackle out of Mississippi State who I think has got a chance to turn into just a road-grading guard. And that's one of the reasons that I really like this. I like him. I like their draft because they had another under-the-radar under the prospect in Broderick Washington. He's a big, barrel-chested, grown-ass man at, at defensive tackle for uh, Texas Tech who I think fits the culture of the Ravens. He's a tough guy. He's very, very physical. He's kind of a no-nonsense football player, and I think that's an under-the-radar selection. Not a lot of people talked about Tyree Phillips. Not a lot of people talked about Broderick Washington. But these are the guys at the end of the third round and later in the fifth round that I think can have a, you know, can have a big impact on on looking back in three to five years and saying, wow, the Ravens really had a great draft because of these players. And I think they're going to be two of the reasons potentially why, because they're under the radar players. Oh, Marshall Yanda retired. So you can't <laughs> jump out to best case scenario on J.K. Dobbins. We're not sure what that running game is going to look like. Well, they replenished their interior offensive line in the draft. Mm -hmm. They addressed that need. Right. And they took some luxury picks, so it was a great mix of the best player available at a position of need and a handful of luxury picks where a great football player slipped 5, 10, 20 slots for whatever reason. J.K. Dobbins, a great example at running back, and they picked him regardless of whether or not they needed him or not. They have Mark Ingram. They have Justice Hill. They have Gus Edwards. Now they add J.K. Dobbins. In that offense with Lamar Jackson, I think that J.K. Dobbins can be the number one running back in all of fantasy. He's one of the few running backs that you could say in the next three years, number one running back is in his range of outcomes, giving his talent profile from Ohio State, going all the way back to his time in the Nike Spark camps, coming out of high school, where he tested as the best athlete at the position among the running back recruits. And then he lands in a team that maximizes the efficiency of running backs because Lamar Jackson's freezing linebackers, and now they've replenished, especially their road grading guards, to open up wide running lanes. For me, it's a matter of, okay, Gus, Gus, why in the world would you bring up Justice Hill and Gus Edwards? Why in the world would you even bring, I'm not saying you specifically, but I'm saying the comparison, what you're doing now is when people say, well, you already had Ingram, and I understand the analytics-based approach of just throw any slop in there at running back, and that's fine. And But that's not really accurate when you're trying to win championships. You want the right players. You want the right rushing attack. And the Ravens do something very specific, which is they've got a bludgeoning attack. But the only way that they're going to get greatness out of Lamar Jackson on an extent, for an extended period of time is if he starts to run less or he doesn't have to carry as much of a burden with his legs. That's the reality. And then and running backs that can keep defenses honest. Well, bigger, stronger. See, Justice Hill to me is not – he's a, a splashy slasher. What the Ravens want is they want that one-two combination of Ingram and Dobbins, and that's where – you know, you, that's what you had with, with the combination you had previous. But when you take J.K. Dobbins, he's a better version of what they had as running back number two. And frankly, he's RB1, and now you've upgraded RB2 with Mark Ingram. That's how I view it. 
So the running game is when it's time to bludgeon people and dominate in the fourth quarter, it doesn't have to be Lamar Jackson. They have a one-two combination because Lamar is always going to freeze linebackers and terrify backside defensive ends who are trying to, you know, uh, who are trying to play contain. So that's going to open it up for guys who can do more. J.K. Dobbins can do more with that space. And that's why I, I'm I'm kind of with you. I think he's going to lock in for a bunch of touchdowns this year. Oh God, yeah. And then once Mark Ingram is rolled off the roster in a year or two, woo, woo. I mean, the upside is RB one in fantasy. There are just very few players that have the profile and have the situation that can build up to that point. And J.K. Dobbins just happens to be one of those few guys. And What you're talking about, I've coined the Alfred Morris corollary, that even an Alfred Morris can look explosive when his quarterback is freezing opposing linebackers and the offensive line is creating wide running lanes. Anyone can look explosive in that environment. And if J.K. Dobbins comes in, who's actually explosive, unlike Mark Ingram, well, that running game takes on a whole new dimension. Well, here's another mistake that I think people make. The assumptions that that all running backs or that running backs should be devalued. Running backs should be devalued because you're talking about Alfred Morris. Alfred Morris was part of an offensive scheme that, yes, did have a running quarterback, but he was also in a Shanahan scheme, and that was the outside zone scheme. I believe the outside zone scheme creates less of a need for the headline runner and more of a need for a specific type of runner with specific skills. That's where I do agree with the analytics crowd that if you run outside zone, you really don't have to have headliners at running back. If you run gap scheme and power, I think it becomes more necessary that a certain skill level is required. For outside zone heavy teams, it's a certain um, you have to have certain play traits like vision, one cut, you know, looser hips, one cut, and and acceleration. And you got to have some obviously you got to have some. Um, some balls too. I mean, you, it takes courage to be a one cut runner, to hit it downhill, to recognize the blocking scheme and to say, I will trust that this line is going to open up within the first two steps that I make. So I do think there is also, I think people who are, are, are saying running backs are devalued. They are for certain schemes and other schemes are a little bit more important. Who had a bad draft that we aren't talking about because Green Bay, Atlanta, either acquired lower value positions with higher draft capital, which is a mistake, or consistently reached for players five to ten slots ahead of where they could have gotten them, like Atlanta. Who else missed some golden opportunities on draft day? Believe it or not, Miami Dolphins. Oh. Yeah, the Dolphins scare me a little bit with with their draft. So you have Tua... We know about his upside, but there still is a concern about durability that won't go away until he proves it. You have Austin Jackson, who is still a developmental player. Uh, to pick him 18th, I mean, he's got a lot of talent. He's got a lot of athleticism, but he's not ready yet. And he still needs to get stronger. He needs to sh- prove that he can he can anchor down when he needs to. A.J. Epinesa, or AJ Epinesa in the bowl game kind of showed that he wasn't ready from a strength standpoint. Uh, uh, Noah Igbenogany, the, the first round cornerback from Auburn, Whew, tons of pass interference penalties, tons of grabbing. He's not ready to play the football with his back to the back to the ball. So you've got two developmental players with a lot of talent in Austin Jackson and Igbenogany. 
What happened with that pick? There were a number of less risky cornerbacks on the board when that selection was announced, starting with Trevon Diggs. Trevon didn't run. He didn't get a chance to run. So you didn't have a 40 time. So the Trevon Diggs pick fell because he failed to run. Yeah, you didn't have a time on a corner whose speed was a concern for him. That's one of the reasons he fell. With corner, see, I didn't really think there was a good corner pick at number 30. I thought already the Raiders had reached for Arnett personally. And so I thought at 30, to me, to me, it looks different. When your first three picks are Tua, high ceiling, but there is a concern about durability. Austin Jackson, who's still a developmental prospect with a high upside, lower floor. And now you take the same kind of high upside, lower floor, explosive corner out of Auburn. Um, now, the flip side of that is they have the same – you could have argued the same thing with Xavier Rhodes when they took him, but he's turned into an excellent cornerback for Miami. But Robert Hunt, I like that pick in the second round. Raekwon Davis, I like that pick in the second round, although – So you do like the Robert Hunt pick. I love the Robert Hunt pick because that's similar to what we talked about with the Ravens. Love the Robert Hunt pick. Getting that road grader in the second and third round on day two. Isn't that underrated, the great run-blocking skills at right tackle? Well, it depends on the offense you're using. I mean, what's more important than that to me, because Andrew Thomas is not um, – Andrew's a good run blocker, not a great run blocker. Um, Tristan Wirfs is not a great run blocker except on zone scheme. He's really good with zone scheme. Jedrick Wills was was a great run blocker. He was the only true great run blocker with – and I, thought, I think Makai Becton has a chance to be a great run blocker as well. Well, doesn't Makai Becton have a chance to be the best lineman in the sport? No, I don't think in the sport, no. And out of this draft, yes. His ceiling really like sparks the imagination. Yeah, but you still need to show to to make a comment like the best blocker in the sport. You now have to su- you now have to surpass a player. For example, like Quentin Nelson. Well, Quentin Nelson has rare physical gifts and he has outstanding technique as well. Mm. And Mackay Becton's nowhere near ready to take on that level of technique yet. So that's going to take time, but he does have special athletic gifts. Yeah. But to get back to your point about the right tackle thing, it's more valuable to have right or left tackle, you know, the ability to switch between the tackle spots or to have tackle and guard flexibility. And I think Hunt has tackle guard flexibility because if you fail at tackle, you can slide down inside the guard. So I, I did like that pick. Okay, Solomon Kinley in the fourth round, I thought he was a late rounder at best, and I know a lot of NFL did, teams did too. Uh, the rest of the picks were okay. I just I just thought for the amount of draft capital you had, I thought the, the top end of your draft had a, a little too much high ceiling, low floor for my taste. They might have squandered it. They might have squandered a great opportunity by reaching for too much upside. Yeah, but we'll, we'll have to see how it plays because – I did mention the high ceiling, too, and there's a lot of high ceiling in there. Tua has a high ceiling, right? Tua Tungoveloa has a high ceiling. Joe Burrow has a high ceiling. Correct. How close is Tua versus Joe Burrow? I think it's – so that question has to be answered in context, and it would appear as though you have plenty of context when you look at the wide receivers for both teams. Apples to apples, right? Great wideouts for both teams. Um, Good offensive lines for both teams. Good rushing attacks for both teams. So that appears to be apple apples to apples. The difference is if we say, yeah, but we've seen Tua for three years and you know, for what Tua does well, how do we know that he's not a product of all these great wide receivers? You can make that argument. You could say we've seen three years. But you can't just make the counter argument for Joe Burrow and say, 
boy, look what he did, 60 touchdowns this year. You cannot just ignore 2018, which was not a good year for Joe Burrow. So I think Tua Mm. gets knocked in some regards for his body of work because we know the same way Deshaun Watson, when he came out, we knew his areas of need because we have plenty of tape. With Joe Burrow, we have one year of greatness, greatness. And Mitchell Trubisky had one year of goodness. Joe Burrow has one year of greatness. Deshaun Watson had three years, which included a national championship, two appearances in a national championship. And we had, you know, some really great bodies of work, but we also knew what his, it was very clear after three years, we knew what his areas of concern were. I think something similar has developed with Tua. We know what his areas of concern are, but sometimes I think we forget that he has a really, really good body of work. Now, I think Joe Burrow is going to be substantially better than Mitchell Trubisky, and Joe made me a believer with this year. But I do think, to your point, that it is – I think the potential is there for this to be much closer because I think Burrow was helped out by a system that that played to his strengths and diminished some of his weaknesses, and I don't think Tua has some of the same limitations – from an arm talent standpoint. So I think Tua can function in a variety of offenses where I think Joe Burrow needs to have a certain type of offense to be at his very best. So because of that, I would say I would say on tape, Burrow was much better than Tua this year. On tape, he was much better than Tua. The reality of an NFL projection, I think it's a little closer between the two. I think that it's interesting that Joe Burrow is viewed as a can't-miss prospect. But in reality, he's really more of a high-ceiling guy than a high-floor guy, where Tua is viewed as the riskier player because of the hip injuries, but his body of work makes him less risky when you actually zoom out. Yes, but we'll find out. The great equalizer is when the snaps come. Yeah, we're going to find out when they start taking snaps. Yeah, it's fun to, it's fun to argue but then ultimately the truth is told and the hypotheticals go away. So That's we'll right. see because I think I think Burrow does have some talent around him, you know, to be a fantasy option. I think that he does have some talent. I think they'll take him slowly. But if AJ Green is healthy and wants to be there along with Tyler Boyd and that entire, you know, and Joe Mixon, like there is enough in place for Joe Burrow to be a fantasy option. I think there's enough in place for Tua to be one, but with but but not this year because we know that Tua is probably going to be a redshirt option for at least half the year. So there's, I, I can see in a draft and stash league, yes, grabbing Tua, but I, I don't know that I would overdo it with Tua. I don't, I don't think I would jump on him. I don't have enough faith to believe that I would step out, and I guess it's for it. It's the same concept as with NFL teams. How much faith do you put in a guy who won't be playing a whole lot this year when it comes to a fantasy league where you're going to stash him in a keeper league when you know you're not getting much out of him this year? Um, and he has durability concerns potentially. Um, you can take him. I don't know if I would. All right. Remember, this is rapid fire. <laughs> Whose flaws are more concerning, Herbert or Jordan Love? That's hard. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I would say Jordan loves. I would say Jordan loves flaws because Jordan Love has some decision making issues that I think are more concerning. But it's really, it's actually really close. It's the dropping of the eyes under pressure versus the decision making, generally speaking, with Jordan Love. So dropping of the eyes is a massive concern because that's that's what we saw happen to David Carr, and I think sometimes it happens with Derek Carr, and it turns you into a checkdown Charlie. With Jordan. Love, I don't see that same concern, 
the dropping of the eyes is a is a Herbert issue. The decision making is the love issue. Right. 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 But the but the Herbert issue doesn't typically change. The the love issue can change, but if it doesn't, it's extraordinarily debilitating. Bad decision makers can't make it in the NFL long term. That's why that's why Jameis Winston signed the contract he signed with uh um, with the New Orleans Saints. I mean, if you're a bad decision maker, eventually you will fall out of the league. So, okay, that explains it then. That's why Jameis Winston signed for less money with the Saints than Marcus Mariota signed with the Raiders. Yeah, bad decision makers are are game managers can stick around the check down Charlie types. They can stick around as long as they're not turning it over a bunch. The guys who turn it over a lot, coaches hate turnovers they hate it way worse than guys who drop their eyes because turnovers turn into points the other way so that's the reason why Mariota is not considered a turnover guy he's just considered a guy who won't take chances that's right and that's what we worry about with Justin Herbert but we'll find out we'll find out how it plays out yes with Wentz there were criticisms of his decision making but the big arm is what got him drafted at number two overall if he gets hurt or he underperforms what does Jalen Hurts, the starting quarterback, look like in the NFL if and when he gets the opportunity? What would that look like? Do you think he would succeed? If he gets hurt this year, just I don't think Jalen Hurts is in position to be an NFL backup this year. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't think I don't think it would be great. I think the Eagles would be better served to make sure they have a good, solid NFL backup. I think, but you don't draft for one year. So, so Jalen Hurts could become that, and I think he he will become that. Right now, I don't. I think it's too much to ask him to to flow into the Eagles full time. To me, he's a three game starter potentially, where you can craft your offense around Jalen and try to minimize some of his areas of concern. But see, his areas of concern from a scouting standpoint are doesn't throw at the anticipation and um, and I think doesn't always get the ball out on time on the deep ball. Those are those are real problems in the NFL. Those turn into interceptions on the NFL level. That's why I think he's a 6.0 developmental fourth-round type quarterback. Um, but I understand that with his intangibles, he has the special characteristics to be a really good backup quarterback who's got the ability that you can work into packages where he can you know, get some short yardage stuff going for you and put stresses on the defense. As a full-time but what you're asking me, though, Matt, is what does he look like as a backup who has to come in and win games? And I don't think his game is ready for that right now. Hey, that answers the question. I don't think it's going to be great this year if he gets put into that role. I think it'll be a problem. Well, because we have fantasy gamers that are jumping up and grabbing no Jalen Hurts in the early second round of Superflex Dynasty rookie drafts, and that may be too aggressive. I think it's entirely too aggressive. Unless you consider Carson Wentz. Now, unless the Eagles find a way, because I, I think he's a way better passer than Tim Tebow, for example, but as a runner, he's not a slasher. He is more of a Tim Tebow type runner. He's, he's, a, he's a better runner than Tim Tebow was, right. but he's a power runner, Jalen Hurts. So to me, Hurts does have a chance to rack up some short yardage touchdowns, and it wouldn't shock me to see Jalen come in in short yardage packages. So from a fantasy value standpoint, he does carry that kind of value, but he's not going to give you the passing numbers you need. I love that you've mentioned Mitchell Trubisky and Tim Tebow. You're welcome. So far in this discussion, that makes me happy. That makes me happy. You're welcome. How lucky was Drew Locke on draft day? Oh, my God. To pick up Judy and Hamler. <laughs> 
This is a guy with the type of hose where he can fling it out there and take advantage of it. He's not the most accurate guy. So Hamler is a, is a guy who doesn't make great contested catches. And I'll also say Jerry Judy's hands are very, very average, but Judy can get wide open with his route running and Hamler has the speed to stretch defenses. I think drew lock is a fantasy option. Just vaulted up into a legitimate tier two possibility because he's really more tier three, but you could envision him becoming a tier two. If you're willing to project rookies having a big impact on that offense. And and if you look at their, if you look at their depth chart, I don't see how you Judy has to step in and be a factor this year. He has to, the, yeah. the, and then Noah Fant, we didn't even talk about Noah Fant and Albert, uh, Okunwabuna, or we just call him Albert. O. Albert Okunwabunabam. There you go. He's good too. Now he is. He's a, gr- he's not a great route runner, so I don't think he'll be a factor this year, but, um, I do think you're going to see, Noah Fant continue to be a big factor, Judy a big factor, and then now you got Sutton a big factor, and now Hamler's just the speed that can absolutely take the top off the defense. Even if he gets 41 catches, what he's going to do to the rest of the passing game and the running game, for that matter, is substantial. And I didn't even mention the swing-out passes that you can still throw to to Lindsey. So um, I think to your question, perfect question. How lucky did he get? He got really lucky. But he could still make catastrophic decisions and get benched. Yes. That's still in his range of outcomes. And the guy behind him on the depth chart who could come into the best situation for a backup quarterback in the league, given those weapons, with some mobility on his side, Jeff Driscoll. Jeff Driscoll, the name to know to stash, especially in Superflex and 2QB leagues. You agree with that? Well, from an injury standpoint, I'll give you that. I can't I don't think I live in a world where that team is benching Drew Locke for Jeff Driscoll. I've seen enough I've seen too much of Driscoll. I know what I know what's behind the curtain when you pull the curtain back. But if you want to ask about, okay, who could step into to your point, who could step into a situation that could bear fruit and make it rain? I do I do agree with you there. I just don't think there's a scenario where he gets benched. Fair enough. Jefferson versus Rager. This is a tough dichotomy. Who you got? I got Jefferson. Rager, to me, is in a good spot, but I think that based on you got two tight ends who catch the ball well, you got a guy who can get down the field and Alshon Jeffrey. I just think there's too many you're, – you're fighting for the football with too many people. You take a look at Justin Jefferson, I, you could feasibly say he steps right into – the Diggs the role. The target role yeah. of, of, of Diggs. Yeah. He steps right into a target yeah. role. Now, all of BC, I actually like B.C. Johnson. I liked him coming out of college. But Justin Jefferson, to me, is is all, you know, there was never going to be a scenario where Diggs was the preferred choice um, in that offense. He was always going to be wide receiver, too, because of the comfort level that Thielen and, 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 uh, uh, that Thielen has with with Kirk Cousins. But I do think Justin Jefferson, because he can play inside and outside, I think he offers a scenario of comfort that, that he can lock in on Jefferson. And there's not a dangerous tight end like there is with Noah Fant, for example, or Goddard and Ertz. You don't have that here. Right. You have a right-down-the-middle wide tight end that you're throwing to. So I think Justin Jefferson, I don't even think it's close. I think Jefferson steps into a ton of targets. Wow. Love it. And old BC Johnson's still the third receiver, and he has the requisite size and explosiveness to play outside and inside just like Jefferson. Yes. 
So they could be swapping between who's playing Z and X. Jefferson and Johnson can flip that and can flip back and forth while Thielen mans the slot. And that gives the offense some flexibility. You know, you mentioned this with the Dolphins. Rager is the upside play. But when you're talking about high value picks, Jefferson has a higher floor and you can't be chased off by the incredibly low pass volume that the Vikings posted last season. That was a time and place. If the running game and the defense don't fall into place perfectly this season, Kirk Cousins is going to throw the ball a lot more. And any volume concerns can easily be solved with a little bit of negative game script. I mean, listen, you're talking about volume concerns. He still had 94 targets. Stephon Diggs did. 149 the year before. Okay, so you saw a drop to 94, but that was in line with what we saw the year before that, which was 95. You still had a 1,100-yard season, which was more than he had um, with his 149 target season. Now, I understand in PPR leagues there's going to be more value in the catches, and I get all that, but keep this in mind too. They lost their top three cornerbacks in Minnesota. Everson Griffin is not a Minnesota Viking. There's a reason to believe that Minnesota may be in more shootouts this year. So we always have to factor that into fantasy. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Can Henry Ruggs be a true number one in the league? Do you see that in his range of outcomes? I, I think he can be a number one on his team. I don't think he can be a true – he can be a wide receiver one for his team. I don't think he can be in the top tier just because I think his game, he doesn't have a lot of level two – catches. I think he's going to be a deep ball target and he's going to be a short ball catch and run target. I don't think he's going to be a heavily targeted player. So what you're going to see is lower catch numbers with higher output. So when you have those kind of guys, they typically get they typically don't have the same output from a touchdown standpoint. In fantasy, you got to have high volume catches or high volume touchdowns, and I think he'll always be anywhere from from 7 to 12 touchdowns, and I think from a target standpoint or from a catch standpoint, I think 70 will be on the high end for him. I don't think you're going to see a huge volume um, unless John Gruden figures out a way just to get a ton of short stuff to him. Where are they going to play Bowden? Bowden's going to be – they say he's going to be a running back, but – to me, that just means they're going to find ways to get him the ball, whether it's as a – as and look, the quarterback situation is not great. So I don't see any reason why you can't run some wildcat packages like he did with uh, – or the zone read packages like he did at Kentucky. You can play him in the slot. You can have him come in, and you don't know who the quarterback is going to be, whether Derek Carr is going to – or Marcus – you know, what the dangerous package is going to be Bowden and Mariota in together. Because then you're really not sure what's going to happen. They can really do some damage coming up with that. Now, from a fantasy standpoint, I don't I don't think he has a lot of value from a fantasy standpoint because I don't think he'll get enough touches. But I do think from a football standpoint, Lynn Bowden is a running back slash quarterback runner slash slot receiver does have some football value. I don't think he has a lot of, of fantasy value. Better pick in the early second round, Pittman or Higgins? Well, since this is a fantasy podcast, I'll say Higgins because Higgins is in line to be the next AJ Green. He's got a young quarterback who they are who they are enamored with. This quarterback has phenomenal ball placement, and that's very, very important for a player who doesn't get great separation like T. Higgins. Higgins doesn't have great speed. He he can start to stride on you and get open down the field, but he's a player who is a ball winner. So if the ball's thrown in a certain spot, he can go up and win it. And you got a quarterback in Joe Burrow who throws with 
outstanding accuracy. Michael Pittman, I think, is going to help out Phillip Rivers for this year, but I don't know what the quarterback situation is going to look like beyond this year. So from a better landing spot standpoint, I would say it has to be Higgins because be. Higgins gets the Higgins gets the extraordinarily accurate. Now, this year, Pittman may turn into a very a surprise fantasy pick this year if Phillip Rivers decides he loves him. And Phillip doesn't chunk it down the field, so there are questions about where T.Y. Hilton fits into this. But T. Higgins, to me, is from a from a value standpoint in a keeper league, it's a no-brainer because Joe Burrow is going to grow with T. Higgins. They will be locked together, and I think there's a chance that T. T. Higgins could become a bigger factor than expected this year. In Dynasty, you want T. Higgins because he has Joe Burrow for his career. Right. Michael Pittman has Philip Rivers on a one-year rental contract. Yeah. That's a huge difference. Yes, in seasonal leagues, we might have Pittman projected for higher points in 2020. But over the course of the career, I mean, yes, you got to go Higgins. I don't think it's that close. No, it's not. I'm going to truly go rapid fire for you here. I know all the questions that are getting ready to come, so let's go rapid, rapid fire. Rapid, 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 rapid fire. Denzel Mims, why'd he slide? Tape wasn't as good as people think. He was a better athlete than football player in 2019. Oh, no. Yep. Which tight end can possibly compete with Adam Troutman in fantasy football from this class? I would say Devin Asiasi. Oh, I called that in the show sheet. You need a safety blanket for uh, Jarrett Stidham, and this guy has some talent. Rapid fire once again. Gabriel Davis or Devin Duvernay, late. Gabriel Davis. Oh, I like it. He checks a lot of boxes. He does. He's not exceptional in any given category, but he's good across the board. Agree. Which day three wide receiver are you most intrigued by besides Gabriel Davis? It's not Duvernay. I can tell you that. I'm not a big Dev- Devin Duvernay guy. I actually kind of like Antonio Gandy-Golden with the Redskins. I know that they have a good... They have a couple of good young wide receivers, but I think Gandy Golden could end up being a nice big target for uh, Haskins over there. So I think Gandy Golden would be one of them, and I I think the other one would probably be, oh, Brian Edwards, easily. Brian Edwards from uh, the Raiders. Love Brian Edwards. Stash him in your keeper leagues. We have an app called the Breakout Finder. Get it on iTunes, Breakout Finder, Breakout Finder, Breakout Finder. We roll up all the metrics there are and assign a likelihood of breaking out to every receiver. Brian Edwards, top three breakout rating on the breakout finder. <laughs> it's Lamb, it's Chenault, and it's Edwards. And I know Chenault is polarizing, but those are the top three in the breakout finder. Makes sense. Better post-hype sophomore, Paris Campbell, Nikhil Harry. Nikhil Harry. Um, mm? No, I'm going to say Paris Campbell. Okay. I'm going to say Paris Campbell. I like the offensive mind in Indianapolis, and I think with Phillip Rivers there, they'll find a more defined role. He can play out of the slot. I think the the, the Colts are going to do everything they can to get the ball in his hands this year. Scale of 1 to 10, how concerned should Ronald Jones be about Keyshawn Vaughn? Six. Ronald Jones a better running back. Whoa. Oh, that's that's word, word. That's, that's You won't hear that every day. Yeah. Keyshawn is a bigger guy. Ronald Jones has more talent. Who you got, Jonathan Taylor or Clyde Edwards-Hilaire? I'm going to go Jonathan Taylor. Yes, that's the right answer! (laughs) 
Come on, man. We we got the Colts ground and pound bully football. I mean, he's going to get a ton of carries. Marlon Mack eventually could slide out of the the salary. You know, his salary. This is rapid fire, Lance. This is rapid fire. I know. I know. Antonio Gibson. Will they use him? I'm going to say no in year one. No in year one. Yes. Darius Geis didn't die, did he? I don't think he died. More NFL ready. No rookie camp, and he's already switching from one position to the next. I think that's a lot in this plate for the first year. It's a hell of a lot by Darius Geis. Now, yeah, is there a single reason why anyone would ever bet against Joshua Kelly? Not in life, but in fantasy, yes. Oh, oh, God. He is a great guy. He is a great guy. I, I don't love him as a fantasy option right now. That's That's upsetting. <laughs> that's upsetting, and we're moving on. Yeah. More NFL ready, A.J. Dillon or Zach Moss? Oh, Zach Moss. There you go. Yes. Zach Moss was born for this. Thank you for not saying A.J. Dillon. Thank you very much. Not Zach. Of these four backs, who is more likely to have a meaningful role in year one? D.J. Dallas, Jason Huntley, Eno Benjamin, Jamichael Hasty. Eno Benjamin, it's not even close. Look at the Just look at the situations that each of those teams are in, players are in. Eno Benjamin was a seventh-round pick, and he's already locked into the third RB3 on that depth chart, and there's no reason he can't compete for RB1. Here's a great rapid-fire question you can answer with a single word. Is Kenyon Drake overrated? Yes, he is. Okay, get you out of here. I know you got to go. Truth or status? Who is that guy on the back of fantasy rosters? He hasn't emerged yet. He's been in the league a few years that you think is ready to break out this year. Oh, man. This is a tough question. Yeah, truth or status for me... I qualify for truth or status on Justin Watson, for example. Ooh. Okay. I think Royce Freeman could be successful if he changes offenses. Yeah. I think he's a trade away from being highly relevant in fantasy football. Yeah, I think um I, I think that's I think that's the case. From a truth or standpoint, yeah, I think you but I'd have to I have to study these closer to find out who my truth is gonna be. I'll give you a rookie right now that I think could step in, and that's Harrison Bryant from this rookie class could step in and become a factor for the Browns, believe it or not. Not not big enough yet, but I think he could have some moments later in the season where people say, huh, this guy has some decent value in this spot. Harrison Bryant from this rookie class could step in and become a factor for the Browns, believe it or not. Not not big enough yet, but I think he could have some moments later in the season where people say, huh, this guy has some decent value in this spot. Did you get a pandemic haircut? Yeah, I did. I, I like saw it. You just, just go all the way off the top. Yeah, my, my, my daughter helped me. Nice. I cut one. I had to trim my hair up a little bit um, mm-hmm. for when I was on television. And I'm just like, well, I'll just trust the guards. Let's see, three on the sides. We'll go with about a, a four on the upper sides. I'll try to go with about a six on top. And I actually pulled it off where it was okay. It was okay for television during the draft. I don't want to go any further than that, but it was okay. <laughs> and I'm afraid that if I take all of it off, I'm like, well, that's it. Now I just have to go bald because that's I have to face reality. 
I'm lucky so far. I've still got the balding at bay. <laughs> Shaving it down is always is always good. It, it depends on the shape of your head too. So if you're a bald guy and you have a the shape of your head is fine, then then you'll be you'll be good. I mean, Michael Jordan. Absolutely. Yeah, Jason Statham. Great head. Great head shape. Just a good head. Yeah, if you have a good head, you can shave it down and you'll be fine. A hundred percent. Well, doesn't Makai Becton have a chance to be the best lineman in the sport? No, I don't think in the sport, no.